Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring future psychonauts. Psychonauts are the astronauts of inner space. With me is Professor Charles Tart. Charlie was one of my professors. He was a member of my doctoral dissertation committee at Berkeley back in the 1970s. He is the author of many classic books, Altered States of Consciousness, States of Consciousness, The End of materialism, psi, studies in the scientific realm, transpersonal psychologies, and many more. This is an interview that uh, I'm about to conduct with Charlie via Skype, so now we'll switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Today, we're going to focus on an idea that you achieved a certain amount of renown for all the way back in 1972 when you published an article in Science Magazine on state-specific science, the idea that researchers could enter into altered states of consciousness and conduct research from within those states. Mm-hmm. You could call it renown or you could call it infamy. <laughs> now, it was actually very interesting. I was amazed that science accepted that article for publication. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to because I thought what I had to say was relevant to expanding science in all fields, not just psychology. But, you know, they're the establishment's big journal. Yeah. And one of the most interesting results of that article was that there were a hundred letters to the editor written. Now, normally, scientific articles get zero letters to the editor, you know, or maybe one or two. They got a hundred. And the people who wrote them divided roughly 50-50 between those who said, this is preposterous. Every state of mind but our normal state is insanity. You can't possibly do science in an illogical, irrational state of mind. And the other half all said, wow, this is right on. Let's get with it. Yeah. What was even more interesting was they, they, they only published a few of these letters, but they sent them all to me. And so I could look at who sent them. And I recognized a lot of the names. The people who said anything but our ordinary state is crazy were older, established scientists. Mm. The, the people who said, let's do it, were younger scientists. So, oh, my goodness, don't trust anybody over 35. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is that now we have the opportunity to look back on that groundbreaking article from nearly half a century uh, of perspective. You're making me feel old. <laughs> yeah, well, now you're <laughs> the old established guy yourself. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> All right. Careful now, Jeff. <laughs> well, I I do think the article was way, way ahead of its time. And uh, in the article itself, you make a point of questioning whether this will really be possible. You listed uh, any number of objections that uh, mm -hmm. would make yeah. this kind of research extremely uh, difficult to do. And, and I think looking back at it now... Uh, there have been maybe a few small endeavors, but we don't yet have a uh, department of state-specific science in any university. No, not at all. Well, let, let me say something about what I was basically proposing, okay? I've been interested in various altered states of consciousness for years. I did dissertation research using hypnosis, for instance, to, to affect nocturnal dreams and whatnot. I was aware of psychedelic-induced states and all that. And one of the things it made clear to me was that we take our ordinary state of consciousness for granted. It's just there, right? And it's normal. Mm -hmm. But in point of fact, it's a construction. 
It's some outcome of whatever we're biologically given, plus the fact that we're reared in a certain culture. Mm -hmm. And that culture teaches you how to see and think. It's like, oh, for instance, the culture teaches you you should be looking at everything through this kind of lens. And that has great advantages to make things you might otherwise miss appear because they're bigger. But at the same time, it distorts your view of the world and makes it likely that you miss other things. So I thought, should you be able to use a state of consciousness like a tool? You use it when it's appropriate and it's helpful, and then you stop using it and use some other Mm -hmm. thing. So that was, I I mean, I love the science, uh, the process of science, because otherwise I get carried away by ideas. But I want to be able to do it in several ways. Mm -hmm. And some scientists do that. They never talk about it. You know, the social aspect of science is that we always talk about everything is perfectly logical, right? I was presented with the problem. I rationally thought about every step of it and came to this conclusion and did this experiment. Instead of, I woke up in the middle of the night with this crazy idea and I checked it out and I wrote it up like I thought about it logically. Mm-hmm. Well, the um, possibility for performing research in altered states mm-hmm. is is quite large. I mean, back in the day, in the 1970s, mm-hmm. Timothy Leary, as I recall, referred to LSD as uh, akin to being a microscope with which you could look into your own psyche. Mm-hmm. And I think some drugs can be used that way. Mm-hmm. But... This is, this is where we go back to the practical difficulties you mentioned. Yeah. Most ordinary microscopes don't intoxicate you. Mm. And by that I mean a person has a psychedelic experience and it's so incredible compared to their ordinary state. They see all sorts of new things. It feels wonderful that they're liable to get overattached to it. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way, pure science would be to say, Okay, I see things this way now. Let's check it out and see what could be done instead of now I have the truth. Yeah. I thought about that in a very interesting way. I'll tell you a story. My first experience with psychedelics was back in the late 50s, uh, before most people had ever heard of these things. And I'd met an Austrian psychologist who was doing a visiting sabbatical at Duke. And he... And I got talking. We had an interest in parapsychology. And he mentioned that he'd done some research on mescaline. Well, I had happened to read Huxley's book on mescaline, The Doors of Perception. Thought that was very interesting. But it was all quite intellectual, of course. But he said he didn't know of any studies of Americans who had ever taken mescaline and reported on what happened. So I volunteered to represent my country. (laughs) <laughs> it was a sacrifice because I had to skip breakfast so I'd have an empty stomach and I that was a real hardship for me at the time but Huxley's book said it would be real interesting and it was for science mm-hmm. so we did that and I had an incredible experience but as I look back on it over the years I realize how much my setting my expectations affected what had happened I thought of it as a scientific experiment, Mm -hmm. and I thought of it as at least affecting my brain so that things computed and were perceived in a different manner. And so in some ways, I was able to experience some aspects of it, I don't want to say objectively, but not by getting carried away of, oh, wow, this is the best thing that ever happened, and now I know all truth. But suppose I was still very religious like I was when I was a kid. And I'd been praying for God to give me a sign and that same experience happened. I would have thought I was given some special mystical blessing. What I would made of the experience afterwards would have been extremely different. So the way you look at things is is very important. Mm -hmm. My worry, one worry for state-specific sciences is that for some people it'll say, I want to turn into that wonderful state where I know everything and everything is perfect and I'm a superior enlightened being and stop thinking about it or experimenting with it or looking at alternatives and they just get stuck on that. Mm -hmm. And just because you feel enlightened doesn't necessarily mean you are. 
Well, uh, and that would be uh, one of the pitfalls of working with drugs that are highly intoxicating. But there are many other altered states of consciousness that you've explored, mm -hmm. like hypnosis being one that mm -hmm. uh, may involve just a mild alteration of consciousness mm -hmm. and yet could be uh, quite interesting. There were some lines of research starting with one or two people of using hypnosis to induce something like a psychedelic state without involving any drugs. And of mm -hmm. course, it was much more controllable as to what parts were stressed back then. Arthur Hastings did some studies like that of giving people a hypnotic-like induction of people who had had MDMA and then suggesting they'd had it. And he found changes in the way their mind functioned. Mm -hmm. Okay. Again, it goes back to the tool analogy of which I'm very, very fond. I mean, you know from seeing me that I always have a Swiss Army knife with me. A big one. Okay. <laughs> uh, the biggest one, right? And I love it and I use it for all sorts of things, but I don't worship it. Mm -hmm. I don't think now I have the tool that will reveal all. It's very good for some things, not mm -hmm. very good for other things. Yeah. Uh, and I think we need to have that attitude toward all sorts of states of consciousness. What, what is this tool good for, and what is it probably distorted or misleading or something like that? Mm -hmm. well, Which is going to take a lot of discipline if it feels really good. One, one of the points that you make in uh, your excellent paper, I reread it just last night, and it, it felt in many ways very contemporary, in fact, still very much needed. But w one of the points that you made is, is that if we look at esoteric traditions, meditative practices, that they bear uh, a resemblance to what you're describing as state-specific research. That it suggests the possibility that, you know, maybe somewhere hidden in the mountains of Afghanistan, there's a, a monastery where people have been practicing right. state-specific yeah. science the way you outline it for maybe centuries, for all we know. That may well be. But again, there's the other side of this that makes me conscious. They may have been practicing state-specific indoctrination. Mm -hmm. That is, when you're being guided in an altered state by someone who knows what the way it should be goes, mm -hmm. and since the state is malleable in a way, you may have wonderful experiences that make it clear that that point of view is the ultimate truth. But it's, it's only one way of looking at things. The ability to, to let go and step back as well as get into it is essential to use altered states to explore the mind. And, and that's characteristic of the uh, not just the scientific method, but philosophical inquiry in general yeah. is, is always to be questioning your premises. That's right. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, in graduate school, you're given certain problems and you're supposed to get the right answer. Yeah. And if you don't keep getting the right answers, you don't get a degree and advance that particular science. Mm -hmm. well, Some people learn to fake the right answer and still think creatively, but it's hard to resist that indoctrination thing. We're social animals. Yeah. And I, I suspect that that problem of indoctrination exists just as much in our normal state of consciousness as it <laughs> does in any altered state. Yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that it strikes me is people who are engaged in various forms of dream work, it's very hard to confine any dream to some sort of ideology. Dreams seem to naturally you know, transcend uh, any kind of logical uh, container. Well, normally in the dreams of us undisciplined people, but someone who's been very heavily trained and reinforced in a specific kind of way of thinking and perceiving, mm -hmm. that may shape their dreams. I don't think we have any data on how effective that is. Uh -huh. But I certainly know in meditation that can happen, okay? Mm -hmm. I think of basic Buddhist meditation, the Vipassana kind, as a wonderful way of exploring the mind because you learn to experience more clearly what's happening and not being attached to it changes to that when you'd really like that. And that's a wonderful tool. Mm -hmm. But then again, you go into that having been told 
there is an enlightened way that you want to learn to experience and you have a teacher who will likely say well you should practice more on that one that's interesting but that's not the right direction and so mm -hmm. forth so even a, a very flexible tool like vipassana meditation may be biased to distort but how different is that than walking into the psychology laboratory and having your instructor show you the best way to use a tiskiscope, for example? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is a great deal of similarity. Mm -hmm. It keeps coming back to the fact that we're social animals. We want approval from our peers, yeah. from everybody, if we can get it and whatnot. And that may... One of the things that meditation practice like Vipassana could yield, if it's done right, is noticing when you're thinking or doing something because it's the social approval that really matters, even though you're telling yourself you're learning to see more clearly. Mm -hmm. If you can see that that forces at work on you, you have more chance of letting go and seeing more clearly. Well, the human capacity for self-deception uh, is pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought about this in terms of the hypnosis research I did for quite a few years. For some people, maybe, you know, 15, 20% of the population, they have a tremendous talent to go into a deep hypnotic state. And they're extremely responsive to suggestion. And it made me think at times I can at least temporarily mold this person's consciousness in very powerful ways. Suppose I molded them to have spiritual experiences, mm -hmm. or what I thought was spiritual experiences. Well, I've never tried it because this struck me this would be extremely unethical. Mm. That's not what uh, an experimental subject in a hypnosis study expects. They expect to come out the same person they went in. But there's a lot of meditation techniques, which if I compare them with hypnotic techniques, boy, they sure are similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you gave a presentation a couple of months ago to the annual conference of the Parapsychological Association mm -hmm. where you explored in some detail how the psychonauts of the future could be trained in the art of out-of-body travel and begin to see if they can map out uh, using some sort of consensus mm -hmm. methodology uh, yep. what those realms are like. Yes, and I think there are great possibilities there. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I'm I'm violating conventional norms, which just want to explain all that stuff away. You know, oh, it's just a malfunctioning of lobe number 19 in the brain or something like that. But I think experience is data. It's mm -hmm. stuff to learn about. What are the rules or laws governing it? What can we do with it and so forth? So... The experiences people have when out of the body or in various meditative states or something like that, to me, deserve study for what they are. I mean, yeah, the brain's involved to some extent. I mean, you can't talk without using your brain. Yeah. Well, some people seem to talk without using their brain, don't they? But <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was a little digression. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a little digression. So, yeah, I think that's really important to do. And the word you used, consensus, mm -hmm. was a critical part of that. Yeah. When Raymond Moody's book on near-death experiences came out, what was that, 70, 71, something like that? Mm -hmm. Life I was after... Very impressed with it. Or was it life? Life life after life. Life after life, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What... I knew about those kind of experiences because I read really weird esoteric literature, but, you know, it was stuff generally unknown to the culture. But what impressed me was his finding that people who had very different religious beliefs or no religious beliefs at all, but who'd come close to death, had very similar qualities of experience. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if Christians always saw the pearly gates and Hindus saw, it was Yama, the god of death and whatnot, mm -hmm. you'd say, well, this is just some kind of culturally induced hallucination. Yes. But the similarity there said, okay, maybe they're talking about something real. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of things in life that consensus is all we need. You know, like I've never been to Warsaw. 
but I believe in Warsaw because, yeah. you know, I've read stuff or talked stuff by a lot of people who said they've been to a place called mm -hmm. Warsaw mm -hmm. and they describe it the same way. So if people have been to a place, a, a state, something like that, that they describe similarly, it's not an obvious projection of cultural biases. That gets interesting. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, Moody and others have mapped out the idea you're passing through a tunnel. There's a light mm -hmm. at the end of the tunnel. There, there do seem to be commonalities across cultures mm -hmm. uh, regarding the near-death experience. Uh, yep. There was even a uh, a movie a long time ago. I think it was called Flatliners, where yeah, in, I saw it in the in the movie. The idea was to induce a near death experience. Mm -hmm. It was like state specific research in a way. Yeah, that's a little more extreme <laughs> than I would uh, I would advocate. You know, the yeah. near part is very tricky. Yeah, it's not likely to get past the human subjects committee. No. And most people who come that near don't give us an interesting mm -hmm. report. They die. Yeah. Well, <laughs> of course, psychology started out back in the 19th century uh, in, at a time when the researchers and all of the, the labs going back to Wilhelm Wundt were using introspection as, as a methodology. And, and then it was abandoned after, I don't know, a decade or two of uh, of research when they determined, I gather, that introspection wasn't really very reliable. Well, that's it. Different laboratories kept coming up with very different results. But in retrospect, it's quite understandable why they ran into that problem. Okay. First off, they were they were modeling themselves on chemistry, which was one of the glamour sciences. Okay. What are the elements of the mind? What kind of compounds do they form and how do they react? And if we understand those, we'll start to understand the functioning of the mind as a whole. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's sensible. We've made a lot of progress in some areas by finding the parts and how they work together. But when you look at what was actually done in the first place, it was done in a very authoritarian cultural set. Mm -hmm. Herr Dr. Professor, who hired you, had ideas on what sort of things should be found. You might lose your job if you didn't come up with them. Mm. And then this hair doctor professor didn't have quite the same view as that one. And then, you know, they talked about these were trained observers. Well, training meant five to ten hours of some kind of training. But I've talked with some meditation teachers about, say, this Vipassana thing where you try to experience things clearly and without distorting them. What's adequate training? Well, they say maybe 5,000 to 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about untrained observers, so it's not surprising that yeah. they differ tremendously. Mm -hmm. Experimenter bias, a whole bunch of things to see why that didn't work, because you can control for those things if you know about them to some extent, but if you don't know about them, they run rampant. Mm -hmm. you know, one of my most interesting experiments goes back to my hypnosis experiment days, was a big question in the scientific study of hypnosis was, is it really some special altered state of consciousness that makes people more suggestible? Or is it sort of a social situation? You know, mm -hmm. I, I did the woo-woo-woo thing, and now you're going to be worse. So you, you play the role and take the part and so forth. So we did what was an obvious experiment for that time. We had a standardized way of measuring how much a person responds to suggestion. We had a scale with, I believe, 12 items on it, and you basically read an item. Hold out your hand and imagine it's feeling heavy. Okay, just think about heavy. Does the hand lower at least 12 inches in the time you read this? You could score how suggestible somebody was that way. Mm -hmm. So we ran people under two conditions. The people in one group, they went through a hypnotic induction procedure, which incidentally, it's, it's poor to assume that that means they were hypnotized because a lot of people don't respond. But anyway, they mm -hmm. went through the procedure. And other people, you just chatted with them for 10 minutes in a social sort of way. So presumably, they weren't hypnotized, except we know highly suggestible people can get hypnotized anyway. Well... We had, I don't know, eight or nine different experimenters at the time, and I'd run my first few subjects, and I noticed that I wasn't treating them the same way. Mm -hmm. And if somebody wasn't hypnotized, uh, I gave the suggestions in a 
kind of business-like manner. You know, hold out your hand and imagine a heavy object in it and so forth. But if I'd gone through the hypnosis induction procedure, it was more like, okay, hold out your hand and imagine a heavy object in it and what that heavy object would feel like. There was something more seductive, sexier about my voice. Well, wait a minute. You give the test in a different way and you get a difference. What does that mean? That doesn't mm -hmm. tell you about what their internal state might mean. That was an example of experiment or bias, and psychology has still not matured enough to cope with experiment or bias. It's, it's a social bargain to pretend it's not there almost, because a lot of what we think are solid psychological findings are probably just a matter of experiment or bias. The subjects were nice, figured out what you wanted, and they wanted science to work, so they did the thing that was mm -hmm. expected. Not to mention the possibility of some sort of telepathic contamination. Yes, yes. And I think that's one of the main reasons there's so much irrational opposition to parapsychology. Because if you think about, uh-oh, here's another channel for bias to go through, and we have no idea how to turn it off. That's scary. That, that wrecks too many things. Mm -hmm. Well, what is your feeling today about the prospects for ever developing state-specific research? I think the prospects are very good. Mm -hmm. If we can get people devoted enough to not just fall in love with a particular altered state, but want to help people learn about it. And that means, for instance pre-selection of people who are actually curious instead of, oh, I want to get high. Hmm. Again, not that there's anything wrong with wanting to feel wonderful and have insights and so forth, but you want people who are curious about it, who are not too attached. You know, like the old Buddhist prayer that you pray that people can live without too much attachment or too much aversion, hmm. or that they can, they can look back at things. And then you can begin to train people, especially if you train them to notice attachment. So you can say, no, this, the data we just got here isn't very good. Uh, you, you, you wanted this particular outcome so much and so forth. Well, let, let me approach the subject from a different angle, because I think w one thing we, we can say in the last 46 years or so since your uh, paper was originally published in Science magazine, there have been, I would say at this point, maybe as many as a thousand studies of meditation using advanced meditators. Mm -hmm. So people who have had years of practice, who are monks and lamas and, and gurus, have, have come into the laboratory to typically have their various physiological measurements made. Yeah, we have we have a head start that way. Okay, these people may be better at working without attachment, except I don't know how you physiologically measure whether someone's overly attached to a particular outcome. Mm -hmm. But if we started researching that, we might find out mm -hmm. that. Well, and that's another characteristic mm -hmm. we need people who are willing to admit, I don't know it, mm -hmm. or I. I for instance, I, I look back at my article in Science sometimes and think, like you described it earlier, it was ahead of its time because it's so brilliant that people weren't ready for it. Oh, that, that feels good. Or maybe I was full of it. <laughs> That's a possibility, you know? <laughs> well, it was a bold conjecture. You're outlining what would be like a, a whole, much more than a scientific discipline, a whole new way of doing yeah. science. Yeah. And I think it's important not just for doing science because being able to change your state of consciousness to understand how your mind works is a key toward more happiness that doesn't depend on using up resources and heating up the planet faster and whatnot. That can be done without having to destroy our ecology. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's, it's really important to help people understand that better. Another but there's a lot of resistance. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll tell you another story about that state-specific yeah. science paper. Mm -hmm. Shortly after it had been published, I had been at uh, 
the Conference on Dream Research, which was held back on the East Coast that year. And Dream Research was new and hot. There were hundreds mm -hmm. of people there. And I ended up flying back to California in the plane with a young psychiatrist. And we got to talking about state-specific sciences and parapsychology. And he didn't know anything about it, but I started educating him a little. And by the time we were halfway across the country, the psychiatrist in the seat next to me every 10 minutes would suddenly turn to me and say, Either I've really been missing something or you're really crazy. <laughs> well, okay. Could be. Well, scientists are irrational. Mm -hmm. They try to be rational, and yeah. they're very good at being it in some specialized ways. But, you know, we don't train people to be more rational, to be less attached. Yeah. Uh, we don't train them to be creative. We assume it will happen somehow if they know all the facts that are supposedly our scientific truths. Mm -hmm. But that's not enough. Well, it strikes me that your proposal could be viewed in two ways. And on and, and, and the one hand, you're suggesting let's take all of the uh, depth of knowledge available in altered states of consciousness and bring it into the scientific community. The other approach might be let's, let's take uh, all of the wisdom available in the scientific method and introduce it into various spiritual communities who are already engaged yes. In, yes, in altered states, uh, and that's that's brilliant that you put it that way. But that second one may be even harder mm -hmm. than introducing scientists to altered states, because I've found most religious people I know are awfully attached to their particular version of the truth in mm -hmm. capital letters, and it's all right if science does something that fits in with their particular thing. But they don't want to hear about science questioning part of it. Can a person become objective and open and curious enough to say, I've given my life to this tradition. There's a lot of truth here, but some parts of it may be wrong. Mm -hmm. well, and we should look at it. That's tough. It, it is tough, but I, I have to say I've certainly over the years heard many spiritual teachers say exactly that they they say uh, you know don't follow any of this because i tell you test it yep. for yourself yep. see if it works keep what works for you and feel free to discard the rest even the buddha said as much that's right but then the buddha said in sutta number so and so which <laughs> you might be able to understand someday if you take the right path yeah yeah, I mean, there's a lot of lip service paid to this. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much it reflects in the actual practice of teaching people things. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, the interaction between a teacher and a student in the spiritual disciplines is very subtle, and all sorts of things can be conveyed that intellectually it looks like mm -hmm. open-mindedness is being taught, but the person's constantly being steered mm -hmm. in proper direction. Well, you used an interesting example in the presentation you made to the uh, Parapsychological Association, the case study of a man that you knew very well, Robert Monroe, the author of several books on out-of-body experience, who reported something very specific, uh, that he had numerous visits to a particular locale that he always got to the very same way, I think, raising about two feet above the bed and then pushing through what uh, a hole that opened up in the wall in front mm -hmm. of him. And, and there he was in this unusual society that he kept revisiting. It was almost like another planet. It had certain consistencies to it each time, like they had vehicles that were much wider than they were long. Yeah, um, which is a crazy way to design a vehicle in terms of mechanics, yeah. but the place otherwise looked a lot like an ordinary physical world. Mm -hmm. But you don't make cars wider than they're long. Your roads have to be two or three times as wide. They're not as stable on the turns. <laughs> and. and he was Monroe was practically an engineer, so he was aware of this 
kind of thing, and yet it was consistent from visit to visit. Mm-hmm. So, so it does suggest, at least in terms of the consistency from visit to visit, that this might be a a real location somewhere within. I'm just for lack of a better word, I'll call it hyperspace, some other dimension that is accessible through consciousness itself. Mm-hmm. And you, you're proposing that. Uh, Perhaps people could be trained to go through the exact same steps that Monroe went through to arrive at that location to see if if they could actually uh, observe the very same things that Monroe observed uh, with some consistency. Yeah, ignoring possible difficulties for a moment, it would be like using Warsaw as an example again. Mm-hmm. We took some people who didn't know anything about Warsaw you know, and we blindfolded them and took them there to a spot in the city and took off the blindfold and opened their eyes and said, go wander around for an hour and come back and give us a report on what you see. Mm-hmm. And if everyone who did that gave you a totally different story of what they saw, you'd think those people are hallucinating like mad when they go outside. But if they gave you consistent reports of, yeah, there's a very tall building on the left, there's a canal beside you know, you'd think, oh, that's something that is really there. Mm-hmm. So the question then becomes, is Monroe's technique for getting there, of floating in the air in his out-of-the-body body, or that awkward way of talking, but that's <laughs> the way he experiences it, yeah. and feeling a wall with a hole in it that he goes through, is that sufficient? If you could train people to do that, and they had no other expectations of what they were supposed to experience, if they described very similar things to he had, I'd start thinking, you know, it's worthwhile to think of this as a real place, mm-hmm. in hyperspace, in physical space, Cer- certainly not here. Yeah. Well, isn't that approach not so different from the 19th century approach of, um, he called himself Alan Kardec, the uh, founder mm-hmm. of the spiritist movement. Uh, mm-hmm. He was, as I recall, a French pedagogue. I think his actual name was uh, Rivale. Uh, or, or something like that, but yeah. he worked with trance mediums, and he, uh, I think he had seven, and he waited for all seven to agree about some description of the afterlife, and then mm-hmm. he took it, if if he could get consensus from seven different mediums, he, he would take that as being a valid description of what the afterlife was all about. That is excellent. Except, of course, I want to know how much did these mediums know about what the afterlife was supposed to be like to begin yeah. with. Mm-hmm. But it would be technically feasible, in a sense, to find people with mediumistic abilities who never heard of spiritualism or the like and raise them in an isolated way that would develop their mediumistic capacity, but without saying, and such and such is the way it goes and so forth, and see how much agreement you got. Mm-hmm. And But, of course, you raise the possibility of telepathic contagion before, which messes up everything, but yeah. we can't solve all the problems at once. No, and I, it, I don't want to think that mm-hmm. we can contaminate everybody so thoroughly with telepathy that we can never find out anything about reality. Yeah. Well, That's it, no fun. It, it strikes me that many of the methodologies used in parapsychology uh, could be employed in, in altered states. It'd be very interesting to learn more about uh, which altered states uh, seem to favor uh, paranormal abilities. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's a general principle here. There's no particular experiment that would prove it, but there's a general principle that probably any altered state is likely to favor paranormal abilities simply because it's in your ordinary state that you're told that stuff is impossible and crazy. Mm-hmm. And now, oh, wow, the whole world is different. Maybe that stuff can happen, too. Mm-hmm. Whether there's specific talents in specific states, I don't know. Going back to my first psychedelic experience with mescaline, I had agreed to do a card-calling test to test my ESP during that. Mm. Okay, well, I was having, I was exploring the universe in this mescaline-induced state. Oh, wow. And they asked me to guess at cards. Is it a star or a wave or a square? This was so trivial compared to what I was experiencing. Right. The question is, 
in it, how do you find a task to test psychic sorts of things or employ psychic things in a particular altered state that makes sense in that altered state? Mm -hmm. I know in my own experiments, I've always tried to not run subjects, but have co-experimenters who can explore particular things yeah. and who the experiment makes sense to them also. Mm -hmm. uh, that's no guarantee that there's no bias problems or anything, but I think it's getting closer to less craziness, less bias. Mm -hmm. you, you know, in, in your book, Altered States of Consciousness, I recall there was a chapter on mutual dreaming. Mutual hypnosis. Mutual hypnosis. Mutual hypnosis, yes. Oh, okay. And yeah. um, actually, it reminded me that many years ago, I did an interview about mutual dreaming, which is akin mm -hmm. to mutual hypnosis. And uh, a woman named Linda Lane Magalon had written the book, Mutual Dreaming, and she worked with groups of people. They would get together and get to know each other, and then they would go home and dream, but with the intention that they would meet each other in their dreams, and they'd come back and report on, on the dreams. And she said, it well, it was like being at a party. You'd, you would encounter other people in your dreams, and uh, uh, she, she believed they were having some success with this. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I vaguely recall seeing something about it, but it was a long time ago, so I yeah. can't say anything in detail with the, with the mutual hypnosis you had more control to keep people focused though yeah so i was working with the idea that there's a special rapport between a hypnotist and a hypnotized person when when they're in the altered state mm -hmm. and so i had two people who were both experimentalists who hypnotized other people and they had a fair amount of hypnotic talent themselves so a would hypnotize b and when b was hypnotized b would then hypnotize a and then a would deepen b and b would deepen a yeah. and your head's going back and forth and this is <laughs> hypnotic here too that's good and then they had a fascinating yeah. mutual thing because they were describing it out loud as it goes went along mm -hmm. now some people think there were signs of paranormal effects in that because they started describing this cave they were in and features of the cave no, I'm not telling it right. Afterwards, they wrote up more detailed accounts than mm -hmm. what they had talked about, which yeah. I recorded, of course. And they described similar things that they had never talked about out loud. Mm -hmm. And some people think, well, maybe they were telepathically interaction. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but that would certainly lead to this same sort of thing. You know, they uh -huh. only talk about A, B, and C, but they both mentioned D, E, and F. Interesting. Well, you know, it re does remind me of an experience I had many years ago when I lived in California. Uh, I was invited to uh, be part of a group of people who engaged in what was, in effect, mutual hypnotic induction combined with uh -huh. what I would call remote viewing. And Was that Frida, what's her name? Frida Morris? Yeah. Uh, I no. remember she was doing something with that. Well, you know, this was with a chiropractor named Dr. Richard Girac, who at, at, at those years lived down in Walnut Creek. And, okay. And uh, so we would be, all of us, in a hypnotic trance, and somebody would say, oh, let's go to, let's fly together. We'd meet, like, at the top of the Golden Gate Bridge on one <laughs> of the towers. And someone would say, let's fly over to Africa Marine World, USA. And someone would say, yeah, let's check out the dolphins. Mm -hmm. And someone would say, oh, look, there's a dolphin in the tank. The dolphin's by itself. The dolphin is sick and alone and lonely. The dolphin wants us to rescue her. The dolphin's name is D, or it begins with a D. This dolphin is cantankerous and won't cooperate with the other dolphins. And mm -hmm. isn't that strange? Then we come out of this mutual state and somebody said, well, wait, what happened here? Let's call up Marine World and see if they have a dolphin like that. Well, it turned out they did. They had uh -huh. a dolphin very named, interesting. named Dondi. And the uh, dolphin trainers were very excited. They said, yeah, Dondi has been separated from the other dolphins and won't cooperate and is unhappy. And we don't know what to do. And why don't you come over and meet Dondi and Oh. We we did uh, a, a whole process where we began a, 
actually, the, it wasn't really adequately scientific, but it was a study to see could we give Dandi telepathic suggestions to perform different tricks. And mm-hmm. actually, we, it seemed to work, and to such an extent that Dandi was, we couldn't free Dandi, but we, Dandi was returned eventually to the mm-hmm. dolphin show and was performing with the other dolphins after ah. this encounter. So uh, it does seem That's like, cool. you know, something as simple as mutual mm-hmm. hypnotic induction can can be quite powerful. You've also listed one of the factors there that I think makes paranormal functioning more likely, and that's if you're doing in a group where everybody accepts the reality of paranormal things. Mm -hmm. Okay, that again, we're social animals, and if we reinforce each other that way, it's not that I'm a nut even thinking this stuff is possible, it's the group of us are here doing that. And I find those kind of observations very interesting. You know, it's not like the only thing we can learn from is laboratory experiments. Mm -hmm. Laboratory experiments are nice, but they can be awfully artificial. Well, my suspicion is that people like Dr. Richard Girac, the chiropractor, who had formed a small group of, you know, less than a dozen people, they're probably, I, I would guess, uh, a thousand groups out there like this where, mm-hmm. where people are uh, at an amateur level, but still they take it quite seriously engaging in what you've called state-specific research. And they're communicating through the Internet also to yeah. reinforce each other. Mm-hmm. And that's something very different nowadays, which I think has very interesting possibilities. Because, again, I've talked to so many people in my life who had paranormal experiences repeatedly and who were really worried about them. They thought they must be nuts, you know, because they said science has proven that doesn't happen. I must be crazy to think it happens. Just to tell those people, no, wait a minute, that has a name and it doesn't mean you're crazy. You might be crazy. I don't know you, but it has nothing. You can't Mm -hmm. diagnose it from this particular kind of paranormal experience. That's garden variety telepathy. Relax and enjoy it and learn something from it. Well, it used to be the case when you and I started out in the field that people wouldn't learn about this at all unless they yeah, read the books or were lucky enough to find mm-hmm. a course in parapsychology. Mm-hmm. But today I happen to know uh, you, there are over a thousand, probably several thousand discussion groups on Facebook and on LinkedIn uh, and other social media networks about various paranormal topics and altered states of consciousness and Mm -hmm. spiritual communities of every variety now communicating openly with each other. That's very interesting, Jeffrey, because it adds to something I've been thinking about the last few days. I've been thinking about the history of parapsychology and it's had a very hard time making it in our culture because the establishment authorities say there's nothing there. It's all a delusion. Yeah. But in my lifetime, your lifetime, there have been a couple of occasions when it's almost broke through to wider acceptance. Yeah. One was the development of the remote viewing paradigm and various intelligence agencies using it to get useful amounts of information. Uh, that went into our intelligence planning. Mm-hmm. That provided more support for parapsychology than probably all its previous history, but it couldn't quite make it beyond that. But then as part of the same thing, uh, Targan put off adapted remote viewing to making money by mm-hmm. getting some idea about silver futures. Well, you know, if you want to break into popular culture, here's a way to make money. Now, the internet connecting a lot of people together to reinforce each other may be a third attempt and we might be getting enough critical mass that the culture is going to think more openly and positively about this. Yeah. See, I think this is really important because who, what are we human beings? The establishment view, although it, it never likes to put it so baldly, is we're a chemical accident and it doesn't mean a damn thing. And, you know, if I manipulate you and you feel pain, so what? That's not my nervous system, and I made a profit. Big deal. Uh, You're just a chemical reaction and so forth. That view permeates so much of modern life, and it's very depressing at some level. Mm -hmm. So we have traditions, spiritual traditions, religious traditions, that say, no, wait, wait, sure, there's a lot of chemistry going on here, but there's something else, something bigger, something meaningful. Mm -hmm. 
we need some demonstrations of that to reach a lot of people, okay? I mean, if for people who already have a great deal of religious faith, they don't have a problem. Yeah. But there are probably fewer of those people nowadays with this negative atmosphere. But a lot of people, if they realize, well, wait a minute, prayer, prayer, prayer is talking to yourself, right? And it's a waste of your breath. Wait a minute, we know telepathy happens. We've got experiment after experiment. Maybe your thoughts are reaching out somewhere. Now, I'm not ready to do an experiment to see whether God's listening on the other end yet, okay? Mm -hmm. But we're starting in an interesting direction. Mm -hmm. Well, one that, of, that's something we can discuss mm -hmm. at length sometime. But that's yeah. the importance of this. It's not just mm -hmm. curiosity and oddness. You you raised an interesting point in your original paper in 1972, in which you compared altered states of consciousness with Kuhn's idea of paradigms and yeah. su suggesting that people can enter into an altered state of consciousness where they have, in effect, a different paradigm. And that, that paradigm might exactly. be, for example, we are all connected versus the other paradigm that scientists typically have in their normal consciousness, which is we are all separate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's like, again, I like the analogy of using different tools, you know. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful what you can learn about the world with a Swiss Army knife. It's also wonderful what you could learn with a magnifying glass. Yeah. And I don't have any more tools within immediate reach here or I'd, I'd get carried away on this sort of thing. <laughs> uh -huh. But to know what a tool's appropriate for, you know, this, this makes a very bad hammer. If you got to drive in nails, you're going to break a magnifying glass. <laughs> so more tools, you learn more things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love learning. Yeah. It's it's so neat. I can remember when I was a little kid, I would wake up every morning, and I woke up with an attitude. I I can express it intellectually, but it was an emotional feeling too. It was a wow, another day. I wonder what's going to happen today. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I learned to be responsible and think about my troubles and responsibilities and became normal and whatnot. But uh, <laughs> I've managed to get a little bit of that, how interesting, back. And it makes a big difference in life. Yeah. Well, Charlie Tart, this has been a fabulous discussion. I know we could talk for a long time about these topics because uh, they're so engaging, I think, to both of us. <laughs> Uh, and and so I hope we can do more of these interviews. Yes, indeed. Via Skype, uh, it's a real nice, good, clear connection. But uh, mm -hmm. for the time being, I think we've given our viewers a very nice introduction to uh, the issues involved uh, that the psychonauts of the future will have to grapple yes. with. And if I've raised anybody's curiosity up enough that they want to find out more, good. If I've outraged anybody with these outrageous <laughs> ideas, good. Mm -hmm. Think about why they're outrageous and what you actually know about them. Yeah. Well, I'm looking <laughs> forward. I'm looking forward to uh, having the opportunity to discuss the other topic that uh, has really intrigued both of us as as well that we can. Uh, push further on, which is the relationship between parapsychology and spirituality. Yeah, right. All right. So we'll, we'll return you, to that. Thank you, Charlie. Good to have a chance to share ideas. It's been a pleasure. Bye for now.